Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Abdu Murray. Well, welcome uh, this Sunday and uh, actually welcome to me. Actually, I haven't, I haven't been here in a few Sundays. I've been uh, traveling with my wife and kids a little bit on va- various vacations um, and also some working speaking trips. And I say that because, you know, I, I've, as I travel a lot, I speak in a lot of different places around the world and around the, the state and around the country. And oftentimes when I go off for, for a vacation, like a week-long thing, and I have a speaking engagement afterwards, it's usually somewhere that's not here. Um, it's usually somewhere far away, and I come home, and we unpack, and the next thing I know, I'm getting in the car to go to the airport and being gone. I happen to be coming not only home to my actual home, and Nicole and I were sort of reminiscing yesterday. We loved our vacation, had a wonderful time, but there's something about pulling into your own garage. And you just walk into your house, and you think, this is a bed that I really can actually sleep in. Um, <laughs> And there's something about that, and I was, we were driving here today, uh, thinking about the service this morning, thinking I'm not only coming to speak, which is part of my job duties, but I'm getting to come home. I get to speak at home, so it's a wonderful thing to be here. Thanks so much for uh, the blessing of sharing with you. Um, as was mentioned before, uh, we had this, uh, my, my new book just came out, Saving Truth, and the message I'm going to be giving you today is, uh, in, in some sense, is taken from the book. There's a couple of things that are new, but some things that are taken right from the book, uh, and it's on this whole idea of a post-truth culture. Um, and it's funny because when you think about the way the Bible actually describes things in biblical times, one of the biggest objections we get, as I go and I travel all over the world, and I go to universities, and some of the objections we get... Either they're specific or they're general, but they almost always focus on this idea, that the Bible is an outmoded book that was written by dusty old people who don't know what they're talking about anymore. It was good for their day, but it's no longer good for our day. It doesn't apply anymore in our culture with the technological advances, with the social advances, and the various things we're seeing in our day. And then you begin to read the pages of Scripture. And over and over again, you see, once again, timelessly, the Bible begins to address the the questions of culture today, which shows you two things are true. One, the Bible does actually tell us culture in an eternally contemporary way. That's a paradox, by the way. Eternality is this idea that things are always staying the same, but contemporary means it's always fresh. So how is the Bible both eternal and contemporary? It's the only book in the world that I've studied many different uh, religious texts. It's the only book that is both eternal and contemporary. The Bible says that there is nothing new under the sun. And Malcolm Muggridge once said that all news is old news happening to new people. Nothing new actually happens. Yet we see changes like the ideas of what it means to be male and female, what it means to be married, what it means to believe in God, what it means to have one religion or many different religions, whatever it might be. Things seem to be changing. But then you look at the pages of Scripture, and as if God knew what he was talking about 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years ago, he's talking about those things as if they happened back then. So this objection often just melts away the minute you begin to look at the pages of Scripture. And I want to do that with you today, speaking on these parables. One specific parable I want to touch on as we begin to unfold, I think, the way we can address a post-truth culture. But before I get there, by way of introduction... It's important for us to understand what we're talking about with regard to a post-truth culture. And it reminds me of something that happened to me not long ago. I, I, I travel a lot, as you know, for speaking, and I travel internationally quite a bit. Uh, but this particular international trip was one I could drive to because it was in Canada. 
So uh, normally I go through the, you know, through the Blue Water Bridge, through Sarnia to get to Ontario or down, down to Detroit through the Windsor Tunnel. But this particular engagement was at a place called Wallaceburg, Ontario. There was this big outdoor uh, car show and other festivals there going on and they had uh, like a thousand people coming to an open air preaching thing, uh, like a revival tent kind of thing going on. And they said, could you come do that? And I've never preached at a car show before. One guy here does that actually, um, but they asked me to be there, so I did. Um, and because this was in, uh, in Wallaceburg, the closest way to get across the river was to go to uh, a town called Algonac, which many of you know where that's at. There's a car ferry that gets you across the river. Now, you're Great Lakes people. When you hear car ferry, you hear ship, boat, that takes 30, 20, you know, 40 cars. This was not one of those car ferries. <laughs> this car ferry could barely hold two cars. Um, it was one of these white, rickety things, the paint's peeling off, and I half expected the guy to pull me across the river like Lord of the Rings style, you know, with the rope. Um, so I got onto this car ferry, and I'm the only passenger going across. And he says, go ahead and stay in your car, and I was going to be happily to oblige him because it was about 90 degrees in the morning, and I was thinking, the air conditioning in my car, I'll be happy to stay in the car, so I did. Now, you might not know this about me, but I'm horrible with directions horrible with directions. I can get lost in my own backyard. So I'm constantly looking down at my GPS all the time, making sure that I'm going to the right direct, uh, destination. So I happen to look down at my GPS in my car, in the dashboard of my car, because I'm, I'm also traveling internationally, so I want to make sure that I'm not getting lost in Canada and having to find the embassy or something. Um, <clears throat> so I look down at my GPS at the exact moment that we left the dock. So I didn't see us leaving the dock. I also, because I was in the car, couldn't feel us leave the dock because the suspension of the car and the sheer mass of the car absorbed the energy of us leaving. So I didn't see it and I didn't feel it. So when I looked up from my dashboard, I had that vertigo you have. You know, when you're sitting in an intersection and there's a bus next to you and the bus begins to go forward and you're not quite sure if you're moving backward or not. Yeah. And you had that sudden panic, I'm gonna kill somebody. What do you do at that moment? <laughs> at that moment, you look for something, some fixed point of reference something that's not moving, something that's stable, whether it's a lamppost or it's a mailbox or it's a streetlight or it's the very road itself, whatever happens to be not moving, you see if you're moving relative to that thing. And then suddenly all the nausea, all the vertigo and all the panic clears up. Well, I was on a river. Everything is moving. There are no fixed points of reference. If the boat, if the boat is moving relative to me, well, I'm stuck there because the boat's moving and if I'm moving, I can't tell. The river is constantly flowing, so everything is moving and shifting positions. It was when I began to look at the distant shore in front of me, that's when I began to realize, yes, in fact, I am in fact moving, and that's when all the nausea and the vertigo seemed to go away. A post-truth culture is in the river. There are no longer any fixed points of reference. Everything is shifting constantly. When you think of the questions of gender, of society, of science and faith, whether there's an interaction, do we have any boundaries whatsoever when it comes to science? Do we have any boundaries whatsoever when it comes to human freedoms? Can we say whatever we want? Are you going to be banned because you're from a certain political party? Are you going to be lauded because you happen to have certain political beliefs? Are you, all these questions, things that we once thought were actually sacrosanct or actually just stable, are no longer stable. What does it mean to be human is a question we're actually asking ourselves now. Ravi once put it this way, he says, you don't see dogs sitting around thinking about dogginess. <laughs> but humans actually ask these questions, what does it mean to be human? And the reason why is there's an actual movement now called the transhumanism movement, where you're actually asking questions about whether or not we can implant things in our brains 
to download our memories or augment our eyesight or our speed or whatever it is. And I'm not talking about prosthetics that help injured or wounded or otherwise disabled people to live a normal life. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually adding things to perfectly healthy eyes so you can see certain parts of the light spectrum or whatever it might be. There's a movement that's saying we can be better than we are now. We can enhance, we can become the God of God, as it were. This is not an insignificant thing. You don't, if you don't believe me, just ask your Google machine um, about that. By the way, the all-knowing, all-powerful Google, who we give our lives to oftentimes and trust. These are the questions we're asking now. And they used to be solid and they're no longer solid. Now we're telling people, including children, at age eight, you can be whatever you want to be. And I don't mean like a doctor or a lawyer. I mean you can define who you are and what you are at age eight. Let me ask you a question. Given the, the, the people in this room, how many of you know who and what you are and have it solid? Many of you don't. Some of you do. But it took you your whole life to get there. How dare we tell an eight-year-old you can define who you are and then expect that eight-year-old to possibly not have anxiety about that? There's already enough pressure to get the spelling contest uh, uh, trophy, let alone define who you are. I'm a child of the 80s, and many of you clearly are as well. Um, and some of you had children who were children of the 80s. Um, and I remember this thing, this thing happening in the 1980s. It was called um, Cold War Neurosis, where children were waking up in the middle of the night screaming because they had finally they had, had these nightmares that the USSR and the United States had finally done it. The Cold War had finally got nuclear hot, and someone pushed a button. And so they were waking up in the middle of the night screaming over this anxiety over the, a nuclear war happening. And there was a band named Genesis in the 1980s who had a song called Land of Confusion. And the lyrics were so interesting and so deep, actually, for the time, talking about this anxiety that children are feeling, let alone adults. And the words go something like this. Oh, Superman, where are you now when everything's gone wrong somehow? These men of steel, these men of power are losing control by the hour. That could be written today. When you have all the confusions and you have these voices that are rising, these women of steel and these men of steel who are claiming, I have the answers, come follow me, only to be told the answers are you can do and say and be and act like whatever you want. And we think that's wonderful and it's freedom giving when really all it is is confusion inducing. Right. See, we like being in the river. We like no fixed points of references because you get to go in any direction you want. Until, of course, you need to find a direction, in which case we begin to resent the river. That's what a post-truth culture actually is. In 2016, Oxford English Dictionaries named its word of the year. Every year, they name a word of the year. And in 2016, it happened to be post-truth. Because the word post-truth wasn't a new word, it was coined in 1992 but it was used something like 2,000 times more in 2016 than in the previous years combined to describe the culture. The word of the year from Oxford Dictionaries describes the ethos and the pathos, the things that the culture cares about in that year, in that moment. And a post-truth culture is one that elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truths. It elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truth. Now, be careful. Understand something. That is very different than a postmodern culture. We are emerging from a postmodern culture to a post-truth culture. Postmodernism said there is no such thing as objective truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And if and we're using this word now, my truth, all the time, but we mean perspectives. But postmodernism says there is no such thing as objective truth. Everything is subjective or subject to interpretations. 
You can reason with someone like that, believe it or not, because when someone says there is no such thing as objective truth, you can respond by saying, is your statement objectively true? <laughs> and if it's objectively true, then their statement is false, in which case they should abandon their worldview. And if their statement is true, then why do you say anything? Because it's not true for me. <laughs> so you can see it's self-defeating. You can reason with someone from a post-modern post mindset. Post-truth is subtly but importantly different. Postmodernism says there is no objective truth. Post-truth says my feelings and preferences matter more than objective truth. Therefore, objective truth does in fact exist, but I don't care. How do you deal with that? Because you give them facts and truth, and they're like, yeah, but I don't care. Now, people don't often say, I'm a, I'm a post-truth person. No one walks around with a t-shirt that says post-truth. No one does that. But they act that way. They live that way all the time. And we're seeing it over and over again where we define fundamentally important and building block realities of society. We're redefining these things. We're becoming the God of God. We have forsaken clarity about what things actually are on the altar of autonomy. Now, this is important, okay, because we use this word freedom all the time, and this is going to be the heart of my message. Os Giddis once said that you can judge the, the, the health of a culture by how it interacts with its chief virtues. You can judge the health of a culture by how it interacts with its chief virtues. What is the chief virtue of Western society, whether it's Western European or American, Canadian, and these kind of things? What is the chief virtue? It's obviously freedom. It's in all of our coins. It's in all of our songs. It's in all of our movies we celebrate, like Braveheart and Amistad and Glory and all these wonderful movies. Freedom is the central virtue of the entire American experiment, let alone Western society. We've stopped talking about freedom decades ago. We use the same word, but we don't mean the same thing. We think freedom means the ability to do whatever you want, whatever you want, in, in any way you want, and you can even be whatever you want. That is not freedom, that's autonomy. There's a difference between the two things. You look at the word autonomy, it comes from two Greek root words. Autos meaning self, namos meaning law. When you are autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. You are a law unto yourself, which means you can do and say and think and be and act in any way you want to be, say, think, act, or do. But if you're free, it's a little different. Freedom requires boundaries. It always does require boundaries. And I'm going to get to that in a, in a moment. But autonomy is what we're talking about now. We've lost the sense of freedom. and We're talking about total and complete autonomy. That's why in our drive for autonomy, we have forsaken clarity on the altar of our autonomy. Because if you, if, if you embrace confusion as a virtue, and by the way, that's what we've done as a society. We've embraced confusion as a virtue. I want you to think about it just for a moment. If you're confused sexually, you're a hero. If you're confused morally, you're progressive. If you're confused religiously, you know, all paths lead to God kind of a thing, you're tolerant. Hero, progressive, tolerant. If you're clear on sexual boundaries, you're a bigot. If you're clear on moral boundaries, you are regressive. And if you're clear, you think that there is only one way to God and that way can be demonstrated, well then you're intolerant. Bigot, regressive, intolerant. Confusion has become a virtue and clarity has become a vice. And why? Because we're autonomous and confusion allows us to play at the edges and not have to worry about if we're in or outside the group. We can do whatever we want. And boundaries, well, those are to be shunned and get gotten rid of. 
And that's why we've sacrificed clarity on the altar of our autonomy and this resulted in this confusion. It's, it's, it's amazing what's, what's happened here. That's why you see what you see on university campuses. As if the Bible knew what it was talking about, it predicted this exact same thing. I mean, I want you to go back and see real quick before I get to the, to the parable itself. And if you're, you want to look in your Bibles, you can hold your place there. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46 is where I'm going to be looking in a minute. But when you look at the very first story of the Bible, of the story of creation, and then the very first story of human interaction, you see right then and there, the post-truth mindset is not all that new. It's actually as old as humanity. If the post-truth mindset that elevates feelings and preferences over facts and truth is part of the human condition, it was part of our first parents. Adam and Eve were given the truth. They literally walked and talked with God in the cool of the day, the Bible tells us. In other words, they interacted personally with the truth, the very source of all truth. And they were told one truth, there are many truths, but one specific one. Of every tree of the garden you may eat, of every fruit of the garden you may eat, except for the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that fruit you may not eat, because the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And they live with that. Who knows how long they live with that? Never tempted by the fruit one time, not once. Does the Bible record anything like they walk by it and said, hmm, I wonder what that tastes like. They never do that. They never did that. But along comes Satan, and he misquotes God. And then Adam and Eve misquote God back. So the truth is no longer the most important thing in their life. And now Satan knows, I have them. Because the truth is not the most important thing to them. They've misquoted God. And then he says, did God really say that you'll die when you eat that, that fruit? God knows you won't die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. That is when the fruit suddenly became desirous to them. It wasn't before. See what had happened? They had lived with the truth for who knows how long, walked and talked with the truth in the cool of the day, and then all of a sudden Satan says, you get to be like God. The truth was they were meant to be with God. Their preference was to be God. And they elevated their preferences over the truth they already knew. So the truth was there, but they didn't care. And so they became post-truth people. The seeds of a post-truth culture were planted in that garden. And now they're a full-blossoming tree in our, in our day. So it's not all that new. The Bible speaks to it, and it spoke to it in the very first story it gave us. But then we look, fast forward a couple thousand years into our day today, and you look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 33 to 46. Now, this parable is called the parable of the wicked tenants. And you'll see why when, I read, when, when you read it. If you haven't read it before, you'll see why. But there's a subtle change I want to make to it at the end in terms of the title. Here's the parable. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he says, here's another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. By the way, I could give a, a, probably a three-week sermon on that verse alone. This is so packed, full of symbolism, meaning, and, and import for all of us. But I'm not going to do it. You'll be happy to know. Um, we're going to continue. I want to draw one particular aspect of this, this uh, parable out. Next verse. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get, to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the, tenant, the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then Jesus responds to them because they didn't get it. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who fails, sorry, who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, and they finally got it, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. There's a lot in there. One of the things I want you to understand, though, this is important, very important for us as a church. If you're a Christian, this is important for you doubly. And if you're not, this is important for you to listen to because the church needs to take an inward look at the way it's contributed to a post-truth culture. I have a colleague, his name is Christian Hoffreiter. He's the only guy on our speaking team who's taller than me. Um, And he made a comment a couple of years ago. He said, if you read Jesus' parables and think that he's not talking about you, you've missed the point. That's a little hard to hear when he's saying that basically we're like this. We take the servants of God and we throw them out and we beat them and stone them and kill them or even sort of put the Son of God to an open shame crucify him afresh because we feel like we want to make him into what we want him to be. But the passage I want to focus on, or the statement I want to focus on here, is this, they will respect my son. That's interesting that he says that. And there's a translation that's a little bit different than that, actually, than just simply, they will respect. That's literally what it says, but there's a connotation that's a little more deep than that. What is God doing throughout this? He is sending messengers, he's sending his people, whether it's the prophets of old, culminating in his Christ, his only son, to deliver us from our sins. He's sending them over and over again. And you know what happens? If you were today to see a business run like this, you'd think this guy was incompetent. Why would he keep doing this over and over again? Why would he keep sending people, knowing they're going to get beaten, killed, or thrown out, to people who he's leasing his land to? Why would he do such a thing? Maybe because God's not interested in conducting business with you and me. Maybe he's interested in being vulnerable. Maybe he's interested in showing you something about yourself and showing you the wretchedness of yourself and showing the world its own wretchedness and then saying, my son by comparison, my son by comparison is pure and lovely and beautiful. And I want to show you as a father, I send a son because I love you that much though you are despised this despiteful, and you're the kind of people who want to mistreat. There's something going on there. Now, the point of the story actually is to get people to see that we don't always love God even when we say we love God because we've set ourselves up as gods above God. We have sacrificed clarity on the altar of our own autonomy. Every human being suffers from this condition. It is not just them. So by the way, is one of the biggest reasons why we have a political system that's built um, uh, to become now this horrible thing that doesn't seem to function right. Because them, they are always awful. They are always wrong. They are always the people who I don't like or who disagree with. I call it the Hitlerization of social commentary. Whenever someone doesn't agree with me, they become automatically Adolf Hitler. <laughs> they become Hitler. Um, Now, I didn't say, notice what I said. I didn't say when they disagree with me, they become Hitler. They can't even be neutral. They have to agree with me more than I agree with me. 
Otherwise, they're Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or whatever it is. Choose your despot. We no longer have a system of society where we actually look for the common good based on a Christian principle, a Christian ethic. Now we just want what we want. Os Guinness says we don't want justice. We want just us. And that's true of all of us. Inwardly looking at ourselves. We've sacrificed clarity on the altar of human autonomy. And Jesus is speaking to it. Again, as if he was talking today. He could give this parable in that parking lot right now. As you walk out. And it would apply today. That's how timely the Bible is. Timely and timeless. We are setting ourselves up against and over God. And it's a very, very troubling time. Yuval Harari, by the way, a secular atheist Jew, wrote a book. It's, it's a new one. It's called uh, Homo Deus, Man God, how we are elevating ourselves above God. And then in another book, he writes this. He says, we are selfish, clueless, irresponsible gods who don't know what they want. Is there anything more dangerous? That's what we are, what we're becoming. How do you deal with that? Let me move on quickly to say how we can actually recognize it and deal with it, but then offer hope. See, this is a lot of pessimism, I think, coming off in the beginning here. And I, 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 hopefully you don't walk away pessimistic. I hope you walk out hopeful because I'm very hopeful. I'll tell you this. We go to these universities and we've spoken at some of these places. Michigan State University, 9,500 people. Ravi and I spoke. They filled the Breslin Center. At University of Michigan, 3,500. Every single seat at Hill Auditorium was full, despite the fact that Michigan and Michigan State were playing basketball that very night down the street at the Chrysler Center. And I can tell you, we went to Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, not too long ago. And I gave this exact talk, by the way, not this exact talk, but something similar to it, to all the students at Berkeley. And we had a wonderful exchange. They come and they line up at the microphones asking their questions because I think our young people are beginning to get sick of a post-truth culture. They're living now in the grisly hangover, having imbibed tons and tons from the keg of the post-truth culture, and now they have the headache. And they want an answer, they want a cure. How do I fix this? They really want it. How do, you, how do you deal with this? A couple of ways. The first thing you do is you point out the consequences of a post-truth culture, and then you point out the hope that can be, that can be gained when we abandon the post-truth culture in favor of a truth-centered culture. So how do you point out the consequences? Now, why is that important? Because remember what I said. Truth is no longer important. It exists, but I don't care. What people do care about is results. They care, they're very pragmatic. What works? What works? Well, if you point out that a post-truth culture doesn't work, maybe they'll abandon it. That's why the students come to the open forums, because they're beginning to see it doesn't work. What are a couple of the consequences then, the negative consequences of a post-truth culture? And again, every time I say this, think about yourself too. What ways am I contributing to a post-truth culture? The first thing that happens when we sacrifice clarity on the altar of autonomy, the first thing to go is our sense of reason. We lose all sense of reason. That's why free speech is dying in the very universities where it was birthed, or the spe- the, at least the free speech movement was birthed. Let me give you a personal example. I was uh, giving a talk uh, years ago at a men's breakfast on my conversion story about how I was, uh, once a Muslim, I became a Christian. And as I was giving my talk, I, I never actually talk about the falsity of my previous worldview. I talk about the truth of the gospel. You see, I didn't become a Christian because my previous religion was false, I became a Christian because the gospel is true. And you, you know, that's what you do, you hold up the light. People are attracted to the light, not darkness. At least they shouldn't be. Sometimes they are. 
but you hold it to the truth, the, the light of the truth, and they'll begin to see maybe that's worth believing in. So I gave this talk, and there's a guy sitting in the front row, and he's taking really, really serious notes, like smoke from the page kind of notes. Um, and I'm waiting for this guy to be the first person to come talk to me. And in fact, he was one of the first people to come talk to me after I was done. So I closed my notebook, uh, before I had my iPad, I had a notebook, um, and he came up to me and he said, hey, I really appreciated the way you didn't disagree with Islam when you told your story. I'm like, well, you didn't get the exact point um, because I would, I would have stayed that way had I not disagreed with it. I would have saved myself and a lot of other people a lot of pain if I had simply stayed what I was. But I see what you're saying. You're saying that I held up the truth of the gospel. He's like, yeah, that's right, because I don't think we should be able to disagree with anybody. I'm like, really? Continue on. He says, well, can I show you something? And if you're a public speaker and someone says, can I show you something, it's going to be a long conversation. Um, and it was, but it was a good one. So he had a diagram, and he, he had drawn while we were sitting there talking. And in the middle of the page was a capital T with a circle around it. He says, this capital T represents the objective truth. There is a total objective truth. We don't know all of it yet. None of us know all of it. I said, well, so far you and I agree because if I knew all the truth, I would know everything. I would be omniscient. That means I would be God. So, so far you and I are in the same footing. I'm not God. We agree on that. And he said, great. But he had all these little lowercase t's surrounding it in a circle. And they were all pointing towards it. He says, this represents us. All of us have incomplete versions of the truth. All of us do. And because they're all incomplete, they're all equally valid. So well, hold on a second. All of us have equally valid versions of the truth. He says, that's right. I said, really? Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, I could go on. These people all had versions of the truth that were equally valid? This is what he said to me. I can't tell you that I prefer their versions of the truth. I don't prefer them. But I also can't say that I disagree. And the reason he was saying that was because he's saying, I have an incomplete version. How dare I judge someone else's beliefs? I was like, buddy, Hitler's okay to judge. It's okay to judge Hitler. No one's going to say, how dare you judge Hitler? It's cool. You can do that. And if you get upset about that, then you deserve to be, you know, upset, uh, be upset. Um, he says, but I can't disagree with anybody. So I, was, I said, I want to make sure I'm clear on this. I want to make sure I'm 100% clear. Are you telling me you can't disagree with anybody? He said, that's right. I can't disagree with anybody. I said, sure you can. He said, no, I can't. I said, you just did it. Now, that was a bit of a setup. I'm a trial lawyer. I, I, I know how to do that. Um, but here's the thing. This is a very intelligent, well-meaning, and very well-read man, by the way. And what was happening here was he was willing to sacrifice his ability to reason on the altar of his preferences. See what he said? I prefer, I can't say I prefer their versions of the truth, but I can't disagree. So he knew there was truth out there. He said it. But he subordinated truth to his preferences. He didn't want to do the hard work of saying that there are certain things that are true and false about religion. And I want to make sure everyone agrees and we're all in the same boat and no one disagrees on anything. So I don't want to do the hard work of actually studying someone's belief to see if they actually differ from mine. I want to simply sweep it under the rug of my preferences. I'll tell you what, it worked with this guy because I remember we were walking outside the, I, I, to my car and there he was by his car and he was muttering to himself, I can't disagree with anybody, but I disagree with him. He was doing that kind of a thing. It works. And this has got societal consequences as well. You can see it in universities. There was the woman, uh, Melissa Click, I think is her name, a professor of communications at the journalism school of the University of Missouri who tried to get a journalist kicked out of a public protest because he was a quote-unquote aggressor. She teaches journalism for a living. And she's kicking him out. 
the first thing that we lose is our ability to reason. And I've pointed this out at college campuses and the students and even the faculty, they wake up to it. They begin to wake up to it. But the second thing we lose, second and third thing kind of are paired together, is we lose our sense of accountability and human value. And this is probably the worst one. We lose our sense of accountability and human value. I want you to think about this. If you're autonomous, if you're a law unto yourself, and I'm a law unto myself, and truth is underneath our preferences, is subordinated to our preferences, then when I meet you and my preferences happen to conflict with your preferences, and I'm autonomous and you're autonomous, and truth is no longer the determiner of who's right and who's wrong, when we meet in the public square and my preferences and your preferences don't add up together, who is going to determine who's right among us? It won't be truth and it won't be intellect and it won't be reason, it'll be power. The person with the loudest microphone or the most guns will be the one who wins. That's not the law of the land, that's the law of the jungle. We invented law to get out of that. And we're going right back into it. Right back into it. It was Protagoras who said centuries ago that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Why did he say that? Because there were no gods above us. There were no gods, he was a Greek, um, in the ancient Greeks, there were no Zeus's and Hera's and all these people above us to judge who's right and who's wrong and what's right and what's wrong. Man is all there is, and man is the measure of all things. That was centuries ago, yet here we, we have our, ourselves today saying the same, same exact thing. Tom Flynn said it, secular humanist writer, a very thoughtful guy, by the way. Uh, secular humanist writer Tom Flynn says this. He says, secular humanism maintains that through a system of value inquiry informed by scientific and reflective thought, men and women can reach rough agreement concerning values, crafting ethical systems that deliver optimal results in a broad spectrum of circumstances. That's a long way to say man is the measure of all things. But did you hear what he said? It's important that you hear the language. He said, through a process of value inquiry informed by scientific and reflective thought, men and women can reach rough agreement concerning values. Has this rough agreement happened? Have we suddenly, with all of our genius and all of our technological advances, come to a rough agreement concerning values? Ask anybody who's been on the other end of racism if we've come to a rough agreement concerning values. Ask anyone who's been on the, 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 the receiving end of sexism if we, we come to a rough agreement concerning values. Ask anyone who's been on the, 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 the bad end of religious discrimination if they've experienced a rough agreement concerning values. Ask a professor, Charles Murray, no relation by the way, but Charles Murray, who was a conservative professor who spoke at Middlebury College, who was violently attacked after he spoke on conservative issues at that university. Ask him if we've reached a rough agreement concerning values. Here's the reality. With all of our supposed genius and all of our supposed autonomy, we have not come to a rough agreement concerning values. We've come to agree that the value we should embrace is to be rough. We are no longer seeking the public interest. It was Alexander Pope, one of my favorite uh, poets actually, who wrote a poem called Essays on Man, and there's a short section of it that decades and decades ago predicted what we're seeing today. He said, go wiser thou, and in thy scale of sense, weigh thy opinion against providence. Call imperfection what thou fancy as such. Say, here he gives too little, and there too much. Destroy all creatures for thy sport or gust. You cry, if man's unhappy, then God's unjust. If man alone engrossed not heaven's highest care, alone made perfect here, immortal there, snatch from his hand the balance in the rod, rejudge his justice, be the God of God. 
In pride, in reasoning pride, all error lies. All quit their spheres and rush to the skies. Pride is still aiming at the blessed abodes. Men will be angels, angels will be gods. Aspiring to be gods if angels fell. Aspiring to be angels, men rebel. And who but seeks to invert the laws of nature sins against the eternal cause. It's important you hear what he's saying is that we've cried and cried, God has not made me happy enough. And therefore, he's either unjust or doesn't exist, and I will do it myself. And yet when we ruin the environment, yet when we destroy all creatures for our sport or gust, yet when we mutilate our bodies beyond all recognition and then blame him, we're, we're frequently, by the way, blaming Father God for the things that Mother Earth does. Have you ever noticed that? Um, it's interesting to me because oftentimes we're the responsible parties for those kind of things. We, but we've snatched from his hand the balance and the rod. We rejudge his justice and become the God of God. And when it happens, this is what happens. When we become the God of God and there's no one to whom we're accountable, well then, who are you compared to me? You're just a chemical machine and you're in my way. Get out of my way. I have my preferences to think of. And by the way, I don't care about your preferences. I say I do, but I don't really mean it. As long as they line up with mine. But the minute they don't, hammer. Because why not? Why shouldn't chemical machines eradicate each other if they get in the way? That's all you are. That's what naturalist, atheistic views tell you you are. You are just a chemical machine that responds to stimuli. But are you more than that? You are definitely and most certainly more than that. Richard Dawkins says we are DNA machines. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for living. That's what he says. Is that what you think of yourself? Did you, when you were looking in the mirror today, getting ready to come to church, and you sort of snapped your collar or you, you know, did that with your hair, did you think, I am a snappily dressed DNA machine? <laughs> you ever hold a baby in your, in your hands, the kind of baby whose face is so pudgy that the eyes are kind of an afterthought? And you think to yourself, what a beautiful little DNA propagator. You just don't do that. There's something more about you. There's something inherently sacred about you. And yet, if I'm a divine being, in a sense, if I'm the God of God, here's the irony. In elevating myself to deity status, I, I actually denigrate everyone, every other person. Because if I am autonomous, then what I mean is, and you're not and we lose our sense of value. And I can go on and on with the consequences of these kind of things. But the two things that happen is we lose our sense of reason, we lose our sense of accountability, and our sense of human value. This is what's happening in our day. Is there a solution? Is there a solution to all this? And the answer is most, most assertively yes. It is. When we set ourselves up against God, we become the wicked tenants. And he keeps sending and sending and sending messages to us through the prophets, through the written word, that says you are made for more than to think of yourself as God. You are made to be with God, and he will do anything in his power to bring you back to that. But the culture rejects that. We reject that because we think the Bible is freedom-restricting or a freedom killer. People often say, well, the Bible was is this book with all these old and crazy rules that might have applied then, but even then they were kind of bad, um, and it arbitrarily restricts my freedom. I want to be able to do what I want to do. I'm an American, after all. I should be free, land of the free, home of the brave. But again, we're not talking about freedom. We're talking about autonomy. The Bible does, in fact, stand against human autonomy. It does. I make no apology for that, because human autonomy results in chaos, because I just pointed it out. If you can do whatever you want, then then 
I should be able to do whatever I want. The problem is when they conflict. That isn't freedom, that's chaos. And it leads to enslavement. The Bible stands against that. You bet it does. Absolutely it does. But the Bible does not stand against freedom. Properly understood what freedom actually is. And this is the linchpin of what we have to understand what freedom actually is. When the, God kept on sending this, the messengers to the wicked tenants, he was giving them a chance. And then finally he sends his son. He says, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take the inheritance. Let us be the God of God. That's our culture today. But that's not the freedom God wants for you and for me, to be whatever you want. You are supposed to be whatever you are intended to be. So here's what I would say. Freedom properly understood is not the ability to do whatever you want, whatever you want, in whatever way you want. Freedom necessarily has boundaries. Necessarily has boundaries. Let me give you an example. I have a, I have a, I have a nice big backyard. I'm blessed with that big backyard. But it backs up to a main road. And there's a lot of cars and trucks whizzing by all the time. And when we first moved in, Yusuf was barely a year old. We hadn't had our daughters yet. But Nicole and I were nervous about moving into that house because we're like, oh my goodness, you know, are the kids gonna run out in the street and you know, sort of kill themselves? Because you know, the ball will bounce into the street and kids being kids will just run into the back, in the back there and not look both ways and get creamed. So what do we do? In order for the kids to enjoy the purpose of the backyard, we set up a boundary beyond which they could not go. Freedom to enjoy the purpose of the backyard required a boundary. So we think that boundaries are freedom suppressing. No, the right boundaries are actually freedom engaging. The right boundaries are actually freedom flourishing. Even art has these kind of limitations uh, on it. People say, oh, art has no limitations. The freedom of an artist, artistic license we talk about. But it was Chesterton who said, even art has its limitations. The essence of every picture, by the way, is the frame. You may feel free to draw a giraffe with a short neck only to find out that you've not freed yourself to draw a giraffe at all. You may free things from accidental qualities, but not from inherent qualities. You may free a tiger from his bars, but you dare not free a tiger from his stripes. You may feel in your own creative way that you can draw a camel with no humps, but you have found out that you have freedom from becoming a camel at all. Whenever you deal with facts, you deal with limitations and you feel, deal with boundaries. And freedom and facts go together. They always go together. That's what the Bible actually says about what freedom is. When you look to the, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 36, you see this wonderful exchange. And many of you have read it, and you probably have it by heart. What's important, I want to point out two couplings that I think are really important here in this particular passage of Scripture. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, again, make sure it applies to you too, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you catch it? Knowledge, truth, freedom, they always go together. Not feeling, preferences, freedom. Knowledge, truth, freedom. Truth and freedom are inextricably linked. Jesus says it here, specifically. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Their answer is, it's actually hysterical, if you actually understand the historical context. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you, say, you will become free? You are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Did you forget Egypt? 400 years of slavery. You literally celebrate your liberation from that slavery every year at the Passover. Never been enslaved to anyone. And by the way, you know when they're saying this? While they're under Roman occupation. How easy we forget the facts when our preferences matter more. Jesus answers them so beautifully, 
stern yet kind. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, did you catch it? The truth sets you free. The son sets you free. The son is the truth. He literally said, I am the truth incarnate. Now, you can't just say that kind of a thing. You have to back that kind of a thing up. You do, you gotta back it up. Now, I did a debate with an atheist named John Loftus at Western Michigan University on the reason why I believe Jesus was right when he said this. When he says, I am the truth that sets you free, people often ask me, why do you think that he's the one as opposed to Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or uh, Vivekananda or whatever it is? Why do you believe him instead of all these other people? Why is he so impressive and so important when he says he's the very truth? And I did it at this debate. I pointed out the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that you can know as a matter of history, not just hope, that Jesus actually rose from the dead as a matter of real, honest history. And here's my response when they say, why trust Jesus? Why I believe he's the way, the truth, and the life? Here's my response. Jesus rose from the dead, and guys who rise from the dead have credibility. (laughs) But it not only gives you a factual reason to trust Jesus. I was at Yale University. Robbie and I were at Yale, and a young man walked up to the microphone, and he said, you know, I see the whole connection between truth and freedom. I get that. But can you help me with how the connection is with Jesus and freedom. And does the resurrection have anything to do with it? I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) See what he said? Truth and freedom, I see that. But can you help me with how Jesus is the connection there? Well, that's exactly what the resurrection is all about. The crucifixion and resurrection are all about that. They provide to us two modes of hope. Two modes of hope. A global hope and a personal hope. This is what the world needs to hear. And essentially, this is what I told him. I unpack quite a, quite a long answer, but this is what I told them. The first thing you understand is that equality is real in the Christian faith. It's not real. Equality is a fiction if there is no God. It's a fiction. There are some in here who are faster than others, stronger than others, smarter than others, more um, sort of uh, charismatic than others. You can get other people to rally to your cause. And so in the great evolutionary scheme, we would compete with each other again for resources. And there's not real equality. If you are just a bag of chemicals, some of the chemicals are more gifted than others in this room. And so equality is just a myth. That's what Nietzsche said. It's a myth invented by the herd to keep the exceptional from eating them. But in the Christian faith, equality is real because there's something that's inherent inside each person, no matter what you look, act, or smell like, that is indelible to you. It cannot be removed and it cannot be changed, not even by you. It's the image of God you bear. You all bear God's image. The Christian message was that all of us are equal. Now, that idea of equality wasn't so much a new idea as it was a laughable idea to our pagan ancestors. The Romans didn't think about equality. That word person, that doesn't mean what we think it means today. The word is the Latin word persona, which means mask. It's an artificial thing. You were given personhood by the state, not by virtue of your birth. You had to earn personhood. And so equality was laughable to them. But then along comes the Christian message. And in that message, it says this, you are all equally sinners. 
but you all bear, we all bear God's image. And so Christ came to die for the sake of the world. So we're all equally sinners who equally bears God's image and we are all offered redemption equally at the cross. It is the great level of all things. And David Bentley Hart points it out. He says it was this idea of the equality of the cross that revolutionized the Roman Empire. And that's when equality was first birthed in Western society because of the cross. And that goes to the global hope. That's why you see, you know, Mark Twain is once credited as saying this, history does not repeat, but it does rhyme. And when you look at it, you begin to see this. It was Christians who basically on this idea of equal hope for all people who were willing to help Romans who were persecuting them, willing to help the Romans, even though they were being persecuted by those very same Romans. It was the Christians who were going into their little skiffs and going out into the, the plague boats that were listing off the coast because no one would let them come and dock because they were full of plague-infected people. It was Christians who went into those plague ships, got plagued themselves to try to help people who were experiencing it. History does not repeat, but it sure does rhyme because not too long ago, just a few years ago, it was Christians who decided to go into Ebola-infested West Africa to treat them. Now, that's not... That's not to say that Christians are always acting fantastically. We're certainly not. But we're acting consistently when we do so with our worldview. Human beings are not just disposable things that get in our way. The people created in God's image. That creates a global hope. But it also creates a personal hope. And this is one I want to focus on as we end. When that young man asked me that question at Yale, make the connection for me. I said, if Jesus rose from the dead, it vindicated why he died on the cross. You know, if Jesus died and stayed dead, why would you believe him? When he says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many, to pay the price you and I deserve, you don't need a whole lot of evidence or a whole lot of uh, search time on the internet to find out that human beings are inherently sinful. That's pretty fast. You find that out pretty quickly. So you know you're a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I don't need proof of that any more than my own life. But you do need to know to have proof that you are valuable that somehow you have an inherent value in you that does not depend on your preference or anybody else's preference, that you have an objective value. What is that proof? How do you know how valuable something is? How do you know? You know how valuable something is, but what you're willing to pay for it. And you and I, everyone in this room, you all can know you have an objectively immeasurable value because the center of all being who is God paid an immeasurable price for you and for me. How do I know that Jesus' payment was real? Because he rose from the dead to vindicate what he said. He proved he was right. So what I said to this young man was this. The truth leads to freedom. And the freedom has multiple facets. But what the resurrection tells me is this. Freedom is the ability to do what you want based on what you should in accordance with what you are. Autonomy is chaos. Freedom is the ability to do what you want based on what you should in accordance with what you are. And you are not a chemical machine. Jesus proved it by dying for you and for me. He liked that answer because it gave him the sense of his value, of his true and real value, irrespective of human opinion. Let me close with this. Look at the parable of the wicked tenants. Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, 
He says this, the English language translations of the verse about they will respect my son usually make it read, it may be that they will respect my son. What is transpiring in the story at this point is deeper and more profound than the question of respect. The owner is acting out of unspeakable nobility and he profoundly hopes that his choice of total vulnerability will awaken a long forgotten sense of honor in the hearts of the violent men who are waiting in the vineyard. He is willing to take this risk His servants had already been beaten and wounded, yet he will risk an even greater loss, the loss of his son. The violent and wicked men who have once again, time and again, proven themselves through their nature to be one of the the, the God of God, God keeps giving. So I want to change the title. I know most of our Bibles say the the parable of the wicked tenants. That's not scripture, so I can change it. Um, It's not the parable of the wicked tenants. It's the parable of the noble vineyard owner. It's not their wickedness that's the point. It's his nobility that's the point. And he shows them wicked, horrible people, how valuable they actually are. Because he keeps giving. Our culture has looked over and over again since Adam and Eve to now to find personal fulfillment by rejecting the truth. We have elevated feelings and preferences over truth and facts. And so we've tried to find fulfillment in things that are personal, only to find out that we've put our faith in things that make us cry, that we've put our faith in things that are neither true nor personal. Isn't that fascinating? It takes a secular band. There's a band named Crash Parallel, a Canadian band, Crash Parallel, and they wrote a song called Rain Delays, secular band. And they point out so beautifully the predicament and the culture of the culture we're in. But they also point out the actual solution. And the words go like this. Sleepless nights and endless days and many skirts and serving trays waking up from rain delays and living off the alcohol with no one but a cab to call lost inside a bathroom stall this carbon copy life withdrawal. And driving cars we can't afford living off our own accord between coffee grinds and corner stores. Limousines and cigarettes and chasing drinks with fishing nets and long weekends without regrets. Well, no one here is taking bets. I need someone to believe in, someone to fill this space with grace, to look into my eyes and touch my face, someone to make me strong, someone to make me belong, someone to make me alive. Secular band pointing out that experiences and stuff and relationships that come and go will always leave you hollow. But if you have someone who can fill the space with grace, look into your eyes and touch your face, someone to make you strong, someone to make you belong, but more importantly, someone to make you alive. Only Jesus can make you alive. I know that because he made himself that way. What's... Two thousand years ago, Jesus claimed to be the truth that sets us free, and for two thousand years we've tried to be set free with things that are neither true nor personal. But let me offer this to you as we come to a close, and then I'll pray. Freedom does not come in elevating the personal over the truth. Freedom comes in Christ because in Him the truth is a person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the timelessness of your Word. 
We thank you so much that the objections that are leveled against you, that you're a figment of our imaginations used by people to control the masses back when those kind of rules made sense but are no longer for our time, are proven false every single time we open a page of scripture and we read the words and we see how you are the eternal one, but you're also the contemporary one. You are ever before us, but ever with us, not only in your presence, but also in your guidance and in what you say and do for us. Father, you sent your son to a wicked and perverse world that valued darkness more and wanted its own preferences more than your truth. And yet you continually send over and over again, both through the permanence of your word that never fades, through the glory of your son who ever shines into the hearts of people. May your church be ever your spokesperson. Speak to a post-truth world that needs freedom found in your son more and more. We pray these things in the name of your glorious son who sets us free, sets us free indeed. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.